This is episode number 150 with world-recognized mediator, author, and expert in conflict resolution, Ken Cloak. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person a reality. Today I bring you one of the world's top thought leaders and practitioners of conflict resolution. Ken Cloak is the author of many books, including Resolving Conflicts at Work, 10 Strategies for Everyone on the Job. Ken has been a mediator for 40 years and is an expert on how to resolve tough disputes between individuals. In this interview, Ken discusses advice for couples, advice for those who are in a tough spot in their relationships, how to prevent conflicts, and how to resolve them with the right questions, which is huge. Ken also has one of the best mediation stories of all time about how he was able to save the lives of two young boys after they made a mistake. Make sure you take a screenshot of this episode when you're listening and post it to your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and let me know you're listening and what your favorite part is. But for now, it is time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with expert in conflict resolution, Ken Cloak. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super fired up today because I've been diving into Ken Cloak's book, uh, Resolving Conflicts at Work, 10 Strategies for Everyone on the Job. I've been diving into it this last week and a half or so, and ever since I've been chomping at the bit to uh, get in conversation with you. So I just want to start by saying thanks for spending the time with me here today. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I appreciate being asked. Yeah, of course, of course. So Ken is a world-recognized mediator. Uh, You've mediated in 28 countries, I believe, outside of the United States. You've done a lot of things, but you're also a teacher, public speaker, author of this, obviously, this book right here, Resolving Conflicts at Work, 10 Strategies for Everyone on the Job. But you've written a number of books as well, kind of all around conflict resolution, I guess, for the most part. Um, But the way I want to start today, Ken, is that when did you finally realize that this is kind of the field that you wanted to be in? Because you've been in the field and kind of in this area for about 37 years is what I understand. So when did you realize that this is the field that you wanted to be in and why? Great. Well, it's now, uh, this is the 40th year. 40th year. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think it happened as a result of three things that happened just in the same year. The first was that I was a, what is called an administrative law judge. Uh, involving people who are at work and trying to decide what happened to them. And I just felt uncomfortable doing this work because I felt that I wasn't able to get to the real issues. And I wasn't able to do something that felt right and just to me. And I couldn't figure out exactly why. Uh, The second was that I went through my own divorce, uh, which was really seriously uncomfortable. Um, And the third was that uh, it's kind of a bizarre thing, but I was picked to be the first judge on people's court before Judge Wapner. Um, And they gave uh, me a case to to resolve, and I ended up mediating it, trying to figure out what would be a solution that they could both agree on. They both agreed, and we reached a terrific agreement, and they fired me uh, because they wanted somebody to lose. Oh, man. And go in and interview the person afterwards and talk about how humiliating it was to lose or whatever, whatever it was. But that was their idea of the program. And I all of a sudden realized this is really what's fundamentally problematic about legal processes. Somebody's got to lose. And what do you do when there are two truths? Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is the only thing you can do is to choose between them, meaning one of those truths becomes false. And in relationships, at work, at home, wherever, everybody's got their own truth. They, they come to it with. And the most important part of that truth for them isn't the factual truth. It's the emotional truth. So if we, we all tell stories about the conflicts that we experience. And everybody who tells a story, if you are required to choose thinking about your own story, if you had to choose between factual truth and emotional truth, which one would you sacrifice first? And the answer is factual truth. Yeah. The whole point of the story is to tell somebody what it felt like. And so then what happens is the other person hears the story and says, that's a lie. 
That's false. And now we're off to a great start because nobody's understood what the whole idea of the thing was to start with. Um, so what mediation does is it gives you the ability to have both of those matter. The facts matter and the emotions matter. And then okay. what we try to do is figure out where do we go from here. So you kind of were, were these three things kind of a sequence of events that led you to being like, okay, this is like where I want to dive in and like deep study and deep research and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, what happened, it was kind of accidental. I saw an announcement for a program on mediation just to, you know, to present it what it was. And in five minutes, I knew my life had changed. Mm. It was just really powerful. And it, all of these things came together. The idea of what it was that I thought I was supposed to be doing that really was fair. What's fair is trying to figure out what both people want and how do we get that to take place. That's the creative part of it. Yeah. No, I like that. So I'm, this isn't, I'm not going to get political at all, but I feel like the country is really divided right now. But I feel like at the same time, there's never been more talk. There's never been more resources about how to communicate with others better and, and that sort of thing. And more just talk about proper communication. Why has it gotten to this point? If there are so many good resources to how to communicate better, why have we gotten further and further to more and more divided? Great question, Nick. My most recent book is called Politics, Dialogue, and the Evolution of Democracy. And it's an effort to answer that question. Mm. And I think that there are a couple of answers to it. The first answer is that we've got a mistaken idea about what politics is, because the language of politics and the process is one that pits people against each other in ways that encourage people to think that everybody else is evil and doesn't even deserve to be listened to. And that's what you can think of as a legalistic approach or even a power-based approach to what is what politics really is, which is just social mm -hmm. problem solving. So now how do we engage social problem solving in a way that is useful? And the answer is, in the first place, by listening to everybody who's got a different experience and asking questions that don't assume that there's a single right answer for everybody. So for mm -hmm. example, with your listeners right now, uh, the people watching your program or whatever, there are three questions that, that you or I could ask. Question one, three categories of question. Question one, who's the oldest person in this group? Who's the youngest? Who's the tallest? Who's the shortest? Who lives the closest to the station? Who lives the furthest away? There is a single correct answer for everybody to that question. Second question, how old are you? How tall are you? Where do you live? Now there's a single correct answer for each person. Third question, what issues are you facing at whatever age you are at? What does your height mean to you? What does the place that you live do for you? Uh, how does it make you feel? And now there are multiple correct answers for every person. And aren't those third questions really the ones that are the most interesting, the ones that really are the most creative? And that's what we need to do. We need to see that the problems we're facing as a society are complex, they're difficult, they're multi-dimensional you know, uh, and diverse, and where they require all of our input in order to be able to come up with not just a, a single correct answer for everybody, but an answer that's informed by as many experiences as we can possibly have it informed by. But yeah. instead what happens is we drive out all of those differences by assuming that there is only one right answer. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I've, I've listened to a podcast this week and a, a YouTube video from you that I'm like kind of about to combine right now. There, there's a podcast episode that brought up a, uh, a, a quote, I think it was from Bill Clinton, that in politics, people are so worried about good versus bad instead of right versus wrong. And then I think I, I you were talking about, I, I watched a video of you giving a, a talk about, I think your latest book, where you talked about how Aristotle was kind of like the first person to kind of come up with the kind of modern democratic form of politics. And, and that definition was like, the highest form of good, I think, maybe is what you said. And so that, that was, that's kind of what I started to think about is that so many people are trying to pin like good versus bad rather than just like trying to come up with what is right. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Aristotle says that his definition of politics is a search for the highest common good. Okay. Which is great. And there's nothing really wrong with that. What's wrong with it is when we assume that one group's highest good is what is going to take place and nobody else gets listened to, nobody else gets included. Hmm. So it turns out that there are three elements in every political conflict. The first is that there is a diversity of views about how to solve a problem. So there are multiple ways. If there's only one way of solving a problem, then there, isn't, there is no conflict. But if there have to be many different ways of solving it. The second is that there's an inequality between who gets listened to and who doesn't, whose ideas get accepted and whose don't. But the third element is the one that touches on our topic today, which is there, there is an adversarial win-lose process for deciding what solutions you're going to implement. But that isn't necessary. We can have a win-win uh, sort of um, mutually acceptable process for figuring out what we're going to be doing that doesn't pit us against each other. So tell me exactly what these three elements are, the diversity, the inequality, and um, what was the third one? The presence of an adversarial win-lose process for deciding right. what we're going to do. Are, are these three elements things that we need to, like, are, they, are you saying these are things that we need to be aware of, the things or like, what exactly is their role? Yeah. So for example, for diversity, one approach to solving political problems is to eliminate diversity. But the problem mm. with doing that is um, we don't want to eliminate diversity. We don't want to eliminate equality because we want everybody to be listened to and have a voice and be able to talk about what their experiences are. So here's a question that I asked to do that. Uh, instead of asking, what do you think or why do you think you're right? Um, we start with the question, what life experiences have you had that have led you to feel so passionately about this issue? What does it mean to you? When we talk about gun control, or we talk about abortion, or we talk about race, or we talk about you know, same-sex marriage, or any of the hot issues that people are discussing, there's room for disagreement. And if instead of looking at it as a fight of good against evil, we look at it as a search for the highest common good. How do we actually solve this problem in a way that doesn't defeat anybody? What we end up coming up with is an approach that can be really creative. Here's my way of describing it. There are two ways of combining things, opposite things, opposite views, uh, uh, whatever it might happen to be. The first is you take hot water and cold water and you mix them together and you get lukewarm water. That's compromise. But the second is you take water and you add flour and heat and you make bread. And you can't imagine the bread if you're the flour or the water or the heat. Mm. It's the combination. And that's what we try to do in mediation is to search for the bread. Um, how do we create a higher level of solution um, that really um, doesn't require a loser? And that's the, the idea of the win-win approach, what we call an interest-based problem solving. So you have a position, which is what you, but you, you may be able to say, well, this position is wrong or that position is right, but everybody's interest is legitimate. Everybody has some legitimate why about why this concerns them, what it means to them, what it, why it matters to them, what their life experiences have been with it. And we need to be informed by all of those as best we can. It doesn't mean that there aren't hard choices, which there will be. It just means that we stop seeing each other as the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that, you know, so much what you talk about in, in this book is like getting to know the person and like trying to be as empathetic as possible towards being able to to listen to them and, and know where they're coming from and get the big picture. Um, where I want to go now is obviously you're, um, you've done mediating and doing a lot of resolving conflicts is kind of what you do, but over the course of doing all the resolving conflicts, what have you learned about how to go about avoiding conflicts or, and, and kind of in, in stemming in stemming from that question, is that a good question to ask or is it even, worthwhile trying to avoid 
conflicts? Like, is that something a, a, a worthwhile pursuit to do? Or is it simply that we need to be better at conflict resolution? Well, we have a, a specific language around this within the field of conflict resolution. And what avoidance usually means is not dealing with any of the underlying issues, just like uh, apathy is a form of avoidance. Okay. Cynicism is a form of avoidance. Lots of organizations, most workplaces are conflict avoidant, but prevention is a different type of word. So conflict prevention, I think, is what you're really describing. Yeah. And, and, and it is a very worthwhile thing to do to try to prevent conflicts. And one of the ways of doing that is by, under, by listening to the other person and asking them real questions about what they think and why that's important to them, including your spouse or your co-workers or whatever they might happen to be. Um, but also trying to build their interests into whatever it is that you're proposing, acknowledging how they're feeling, saying, yeah, I get it. You know, you're, you're really upset about this. It means a lot to you. Terrific. So let's talk about why it means a lot to you and what we can do to make sure that you feel like, you know, you're, well, who you are and what you want is, is included in whatever it is we come up with. Because I want that to happen because I have, uh, a, my orientation is to creating the best relationship that I can with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is very pertainable to a lot of my listeners. A lot of my listeners are, are relatively young. And, you know, before we um, started recording, you talked about how you were just in a mediation for a couple going through a divorce. So, a lot, and like I said, a lot of my listeners are young. So people are in new relationships, maybe just getting married, that sort of thing. So what maybe advice would you give to somebody in a new relationship, somebody newly married about things that they can do? to prevent some of those kind of conflicts that you see often arise in some of your mediations? I would say there are several things. The most important probably is what we call asking open-ended questions. Mm -hmm. So a closed-ended question is the question like, where were you last night? Or um, where were you on October the 31st? Or what's your address? You know, there, there's a single correct answer to those questions. Yeah. But an open-ended question is, uh, why does this matter so much to you? Um, uh, or um, what kind of relationship would you like to have with me? Or what does the word marriage mean to you? What does husband mean to you? Or the word wife? So what is it about these open-ended questions? Why, why are they so powerful? Is it because that the other person can kind of bring their own creative mind to the table? Like, what is it so important about them? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. They get to bring themselves, you know. So, you know, one of the issues with closed-ended questions is you can ask a question about it, which is how much room is there in this question for me mm. to be myself? And that's the answer really is not much. So, we want to give permission to people to be themselves um, and to be respected for who they are. Um, even to be acknowledged. So there's something in relationships that has been discovered by psychologists. It's called heart math, is one version of it. And there have been studies that show that you can predict with about 90% accuracy whether a relationship is going to succeed or not based on one thing. What is the ratio of positive, acknowledging, loving, caring statements to negative, critical, disparaging ones? And what they say is, the ratio should be five to one. That's pretty tough. Most relationships that people have don't get to a five to one of positive to negative. So what we have to see is, um, here's a question that people can ask at work or in their home. In the middle of the argument, just stop the argument by asking the other person this question. Excuse me, is this conversation working for you? The answer will be no. Second question, would you like it to work? Who wouldn't like it to work? Third mm -hmm. question, what is one thing I could do that would make it work better for you? And now would you like to hear one thing you could do that would make it work better for me? And now let's start over again and have this conversation again and see if we can do those things. Yeah, Pretty dramatic, radical thing to do. 
Yeah, that definitely is. Is there, so I don't know exactly how the mediation process works, but when you're, if you're going through a mediation process for people who are having a divorce, have there been times when you've been going through the process and people have decided not to go through with a divorce? And if so, and, and if so, is there a commonality? Is there like a common question or a common topic or a common thing that gets those people out of them wanting to get a divorce? Yes. Uh, and the answer is yes to both of those. Okay. It often happens that people get divorced because they have a deep conflict between them that they haven't been able to resolve and they just get exhausted trying to resolve it and they start to give up. They think that it's unresolvable and it isn't. So there are a couple of questions that you can ask. Here's one. Uh, if there was one thing that the other person could do that would make you change your mind about wanting to get divorced, what would that one thing be? And if the answer is there's nothing, then it's over. But if the answer is yes, here's something the other person could do that would make me change your mind. That Now we're back into relationship building. And now we can see, okay, that's a pretty important thing. Now, what would it mean to the other person to do that? And the problem is sometimes it means they think they're right to you know, live their life. And maybe they have one thing that the other person could do. So here's the place where it becomes really interesting there are what I call reciprocal triggers. Each person gets triggered by something the other person did. So yesterday I did a marital mediation with a couple and she would expect him to do something to include her and he didn't include her. And so she would say to him, why didn't you include me? Meaning she gets triggered because he didn't think of her. But he hears her tone of voice, which is critical, which makes him defensive. And so he just, but he doesn't want to go there and he doesn't know how to go there. So he just says, well, I just didn't have time. And now she gets triggered again because he doesn't have time for me. That means he doesn't care about me even more. And so the thing just turns in a circle. So what has to happen is each person has to be responsible for looking at their own triggers and helping the other person see that that wasn't their intention. She knows he doesn't, he really cares about her. She knows that, but she doesn't feel it. She doesn't get rec- that recognition that she wants. And he's happy to give it to her if he knows how to give it to her in a way that doesn't feel like he's agreeing that he's a bad kid, you know, be- yeah. being punished by his parent uh, for not telling her, you know, not including her, something like that. So they've each got issues going back into their uh, families of origin. And this is what I find in most couples that I work with. Um, they're, they're both operating out of their families of origin, and they haven't really wow. talked about that. So here's another question. What did your mother do uh, or your father do when they had a conflict? Yell, scream, slam doors, hit, cry, walk out. You know, what did they do? Do you want to do that? Um, what do the two of you do when you're in conflict? And does that work for you? Uh, and if not, um, what's something different? What is a higher level of skill that you could bring to that conversation that would still communicate how you feel, but would be, would st- at the same time communicate, I really care about you and I care about this relationship and I want it going forward. And so I'm prepared to listen to this conversation and participate, but I also want to talk about what's true for me, which is that I'm feeling right now under attack and criticized, and I don't feel that that's fair, right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of conversation can take place. So if, you're say, if you say that a lot of people act from their family of origin, and that's a lot of times what causes a lot of conflict, then what can somebody do if they're either like not in a relationship or like I guess in a relationship too? What kind of like like personal work can what kind of questions can somebody ask themselves to make sure that they don't fall into a potential trap of doing what their parents did? Yeah, no, no. This is uh, what's important is to not feel trapped by what your parents did. Uh, you can choose to do it, but that's a choice. 
Um, but you can also choose to do better than they did. So how do you do that? The first thing is to be aware of the automatic response that you're making and trace it back to the place of its origin. So you get mad when she criticizes you. When was the first time that you got mad when somebody criticized you? Who was that person that you got mad at? Now let's talk about that person because you're just carrying this over from your mom or your dad into this new relationship. So you can watch that inside yourself. The second thing that you can do is you can start to dismantle it piece by piece. Take it apart, see what the different elements of it are, and then fix each of those elements. One of the elements, probably the most difficult one to fix, is the one that blames yourself for whatever it is that happened because this is what kids do. Uh, they'll turn it inward into themselves. It must be my fault, I'm a bad person. And sometimes the parents will play into that, uh, like, you know, you're stupid, you're incompetent, you're whatever the insults are. And what we have to then do is to realize that was them talking to themselves because they're, work they're still working on their own problems and I feel sorry for my parents that they didn't have the ability to escape that. I need to escape it for me, for mm -hmm. my future. And that means I need to find a place where I can choose to do it differently. Uh, and then that's the next piece, is finding what it is that you can do that can shift the entire thing in a different direction. And often that takes the form of a question. But sometimes it can even take the form of, can I just talk to you right now about how I'm feeling about yeah. this conversation? Um, because I'm feeling really uncomfortable in this conversation right now, and I don't want to feel that way. I really care about you, and I'd like the conversation to work for both of us. Are you feeling uncomfortable too? If you are, uh, I'd like to know what I'm doing that makes you feel uncomfortable, and then I'm going to tell you what you're doing that makes me feel uncomfortable. But start with them. That's a really useful way of doing it. And then, of course, there's years of practice. Yeah, so I think... The, you have some like amazing prompts for people to use to ask themselves, to ask other people in order to spark the right kind of conversation in order to resolve some conflicts. But how do we, how do you get people to actually ask the questions? Cause I feel like asking the questions, like if I, if I'm reading your book, like I'm like seeing these questions, like these are great questions to ask, but I see a lot of people probably aren't going to be courageous enough to find it within themselves to ask the questions. So what does it take for people to be courageous enough to ask a question, I guess? Yeah. Uh, another great question, a really beautiful question. So I think that what it takes is essentially this. There is a, a price that you're going to pay for asking the question. But there's a price you're going to pay for not asking it too. And between those two prices, the second one is the greater price. The one about not asking it means you are not only cheating the other person out of the possibility of creating a more successful conversation. You're cheating yourself out of the right to say who you are and what works for you and what doesn't. And that doesn't feel good. So uh, there's a wonderful statement by Henry David Thoreau uh, who said, uh, the price of anything is the amount of life you pay for it. So how much do we pay for our conflicts? And we pay in our lives for our conflicts. So what it takes is a kind of decision, I'm gonna live my life um, and I'm not going, and I'm gonna have the, you know, the courage to pay the price um, for uh, telling my truth, um, but I need to do it in a way that doesn't deny anyone else's truth because otherwise um, they're gonna be upset over what I've just said unnecessarily. But mm -hmm. what I wanna do is let everybody have the right to say who they are and what they think is important, why it matters to them, what they wanna see happen going forward. And then we can negotiate and figure out how we're gonna do it together. Yeah, it, it sounds like to me, like when you, when you first said it early on, like we live in an instant gratification world and also in a world of like avoiding instant pain right and, and and so it's almost like people are avoiding the instant pain for the potential of that long-term pain and so simply the awareness of that could be a motivator to simply start asking these questions 
some people ask about mediation, you know, how long does it take to resolve a dispute? Uh, and there are two answers to that. Uh, one is uh, it can take anywhere from one second uh, to forever, depending on how you behave. And the second question is, how long does it take not to resolve it? Um, not to ask that question. And the answer definitely is forever. You'll hold on to it for the rest of your life. And that's what people do in the workplace. They hold yeah. on to these grievances, mostly because they don't feel that they have the skill to be able to handle the conversation that could take place. That's why having a mediator there makes it much safer because mm -hmm. the mediator is there to make it okay for both people. Um, and uh, help people say it in a way that's going to be effective to the other person. And we do this just because we have practiced building empathy with everybody. Here's an example you mentioned about working in other countries. So I, I worked uh, for several years in Greece, in Athens, helping Greek mediators learn how to conduct dialogues between Greek citizens and immigrants. Now, this is a hot topic in Greece. There are Greek citizens who feel, you know, really uh, angry about immigrants coming into the country. And there are the immigrants who are there who feel upset about the way that they've been treated. And so what we did was we brought them together into a dialogue to talk about the issues. And nobody's pretending there are no issues. But here are the first two questions. Question one, have you ever in a family or a workplace or a neighborhood uh, or a school been the new one and everybody else has been there for a while and what did it feel like to be the new kid on the block how were you treated what happened you know what's the story about what took place and second question have you ever in a family or neighborhood or school or workplace been the one who's been there for a while and now new people are coming in and changing everything and how does that feel how do people how do those new people treat you um, what are the problems that are associated with them coming in? What are your stories? And in two questions, everybody can start to understand what it might feel like to be in the other person's shoes, just a little bit. And now we've got enough to start the conversation in the right way, saying, oh, okay, yeah, now I can get it, you know, uh, what it might feel like to be that other person. Yeah, well, I actually, I'm now that you brought it up, I want to kind of continue with this example a little bit since you brought it up. So if you if if the first step is to get them being empathetic of each other, essentially feeling what the other person being in the other person's shoes would feel like after they kind of have those questions answered, that conversation started. Where do you go from there? So the the first step is to help people become real to each other and open up that experience. So you're not just thinking it from the inside out, you're also kind of starting to perceive what it might feel like from some other person. Uh, and that expands your brain a little bit. The next step in the process is to start to talk about the problems, not as a you, but as an it. So you can take any problem and turn it into a you. This is your fault. You did this. You're doing this. And you can also describe it as an it. So for example, you can say, you are lazy. Or you can say, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, how should it be divided? Mm. If you say, you are lazy, somebody else is going to say, no, I'm not. And you're something else. They'll insult you right back. And that's not going to go anywhere. But if you say, there's a lot of work to be done, how should it be divided? That's different. And you're not going to get defensive about that. That's just a problem that we need to solve together. Or we have a lot of problems, a lot of uh, work that we have to do. How should we divide it between us? That's the use of the, the we pronoun instead of the you pronoun. So just that simple piece. A second yeah. thing is, instead of looking backwards at what's happened in the past, look forward at what you want to see happen in the future. Because you can argue forever about whose fault it is. Fundamentally, it doesn't matter whose end of the boat is sinking you're both in the boat. And we need to address that and figure it out. And as a planet, as a species, we're in the same boat. And we've got to, instead of just blaming each other and saying it's your fault, no, it's your fault, we have to say all of us responsible for making this the best place we can live in that we possibly can. And let's stop blaming each other for it and try to figure out what we can do. 
together. I like it. I like it. Um, so th- like we said, you've been in the kind of this industry and resolving conflicts for about 40 years now. What has stayed the same in terms of conflicts that are just continuing to come up and will never, will never not come up? And what are the new conflicts that are coming up that have not happened in the past? So the, the ones that I think are the same inside organizations, which we can think of as conflict resolution mechanisms, every workplace, every organization is an effort to resolve conflicts by bringing a diverse group of people together and harmonizing their activity. That's kind of, that requires conflict resolution. But the, those organizations are not very good at it. Every marriage, every two people who are, form a couple together um, are two people who are facing problems together, and those are difficult. Anytime you get two or more people together, you're going to have some difficulty, and those difficulties continue, and some of them remain the same, but some of them are going to change. So, for example, there's a very different sense about gender responsibilities today than there was 40 years ago. Men look at themselves differently. Women look at themselves differently. The whole relationship is seen differently. Um, You know, gender is seen as more of a construct than a, a given. The second thing that's changed is a lot of changes generationally with Gen X and Gen Y and, you know, uh, all the different generations that have been coming up, each one of which has a very different attitude towards conflicts and how they should be resolved. So you have different, just because you grew up in different periods, so like I uh, grew up in the 60s, really, and there was a very different attitude toward conflict then than happened in the 80s or happened in the early 2000s or whatever. And now that's changing very rapidly as the nation is becoming more and more uh, sort of angry and upset with each other. Uh, And this is happening not just in the U.S., but around the world where people are being divided along lines that didn't exist just even five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, It's getting worse now. Do you think that a a potential additional reason for more and more conflict to be happening because people like enjoy conflict? Is that a reasonable thing to say? The question is, what is it that they enjoy about conflict? And I think that the answer is they enjoy having a really close connection with the person who is, you know, sort of... uh, causing them to think a little bit about it. They enjoy having a a way of saying what's important to them. What they don't necessarily enjoy is the destructive part of that conflict. So to rephrase it, are you saying that maybe people like kind of an, an opponent, somebody to kind of battle with, but they don't like the, uh, the negative results of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they don't like the behaviors, the negative behaviors. Nobody wants to be insulted, demeaned, diminished. Uh, you know, that, that doesn't feel good to anybody. We don't have to do that. It turns out that there are other ways of saying things. Um, and if you think about any insult, you can see that um, whatever the insult is, if you take, for example, you know, you're lazy, and that's seen as an insult. The first thing is that that can be presented as an accusation. It can be presented as a confession. Or it can be presented as a request. You are lazy. I wish I could take time off like you do. And can you give me a hand? And in content, those three are the same. But the outcome is going to be totally different. So what we are now talking about in the field is what are called generative conflicts. How to have conflicts that generate some new outcome. Um, Mm. How how to have constructive conflicts. Um, Because we're not opposed to conflict. Conflict is actually a force for change, for improvement. But what we want to do is try to build our skills at handling that conflict in a way that Um, lets us really achieve those positive things that come out of it and not get stuck having, you know, yes, you did, no, I didn't, you know, types of conversations that just go nowhere. 
I like you, like like you said. What what's the what, what's the phrase that you use that everybody's there? People are talking about now to generate new generative generative conflicts. Yeah, generative conflicts. I like that a lot. That's cool. That's a cool idea. Um, well, I want to make sure we get the last few questions in. I want to ask you like for a, a personal question. Is there a favorite conflict that you have resolved? Yeah, there is. I've done a lot of uh, juvenile victim offender mediations kids who commit crimes and their victims, which are now usually included in something called restorative justice. And uh, this was a particular case involving a woman who's driving on the freeway and all of a sudden her windshield shatters and she almost gets into a crash. And the police come and they discover two kids up on the overpass with a BB gun. Uh, one is 11 and the other one is nine. And so the police start to charge them and throw them into juvenile court, but we have a mediation program that is, allows them to send the kids to mediation. So the kids come and usually the parents are supposed to be there, but the father's long gone. The mother works full-time, has two jobs. The grandmother who's in her eight, late 80s is taking care of the kids, right? So she can hardly do anything. The, the mother isn't even there because she can't afford to take off from work. And now the woman comes in who was driving in the car and we ask her to start and she says, she just points at these kids and she says, you little sons of bitches, you almost killed me. And this is scary to them and they start to cry. And then she stops and she realizes these are children, what are you doing? And now the kids apologize for what they did. And now she starts to cry. Um, and we say, you know, then we have this really good empathetic conversation. And then we say, okay, what do you want to come out of this? And she says, well, I want them to pay for my windshield. Well, how are they going to pay for her windshield? The mother works full time. The grandmother's not working. The mother's supporting everybody. The kids don't have jobs. So that's not going to work. So instead she says, well, as we say, what else could you ask for? And she says, well, they could come to my house and wash my car every weekend. Great. Okay. The kids agree with that. She's a little nervous because she's got these kids coming to her house, but we show up all together and the kids are great and they're in good mood and they wash her car. Now just imagine what it feels like to be the kid washing the car. You're washing your sins, right? And now that goes really well. And the second time they come, um, it's hot. Uh, she brings out milk and cookies. And then the two months is gone that they've washed the car, but she's got some other stuff that needs to be done around the house. So she decides to ask the kids to do that and pay them. And now they're coming every weekend because she's an elderly woman and they're taking out the garbage and mowing the lawn and all this stuff. Um, a couple of years ago, the oldest kid decided to go to college. Guess who paid his tuition? No way. Yeah. And now imagine what would have happened to these kids in juvenile hall in, in some type of criminal environment. Their lives would have just been over. Yeah. And now they've got this beautiful relationship with a, a new grandmother in their lives. Uh, and they're still connected to her. They still go and see her all the time. That's awesome. And it's like probably 10 years later. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh, that's an awesome story. That's so cool. Um, the tuition thing. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Well, the, the last couple of questions I, I, I like to ask all my guests. So I believe that one of the most important things in order to get closer to the best version of yourself is to gain clarity on what that person might look like um, and then try to reverse engineer and, and get closer to that person. And so what I want to ask for you, is there a particular, and I'm going to add a third thing on that I don't normally add, but is there a particular skill a particular piece of knowledge or a particular question answered that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? Yes. And the difficulty is to find that. And in order to find it, uh, you have to go deeper inside yourself to that place of authenticity. And what I would recommend as a process for doing that is meditation, not mediation, mm -hmm. meditation, silent meditation in which you uh, let go of all of the stuff that isn't you. Yeah. Um, and you gradually get to a place of greater depth and knowledge about who you are. And then what happens is um, uh, what you discover is that you are wasting an enormous amount of life energy 
spirit, if you will, in stuff that isn't you. And you want to increasingly center yourself in the place that is authentic for you, that is real for you. Yeah. I'm also actually asking you, like, what is a skill or a piece of knowledge that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? I would say it's this. Uh, Most of the arguments and conflicts that we have take the form of us versus them. Me versus you or us versus them. And fundamentally, it is the realization there is no them. There's just us. It's just us. Everybody else is just like you, struggling, trying to figure it out. Cut them a little slack. You know, give them a little room to discover for themselves what they're doing that isn't working and come from that place. And if you can do that, that's a heart space. Um, And so it's not head knowledge, it's heart knowledge that actually opens this place for you. I love it. I love it. That's awesome. Uh, Well, before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you, Ken, because I think for you to go from this place back like over 40 years ago of kind of like realizing this area that you could have a significant impact in and seeing this area that you had kind of a, a knack for or a talent for, if you will, and then putting so much time, research and effort into it and being able to affect so many lives in a positive manner. I think that's so cool, especially that story that you told. That's like one of the coolest stories ever because everybody has like their unique way of changing other people's lives and affecting it in a positive way. And it's so cool that you have found such kind of your niche in such a a cool, unique way. Um, So I think it's awesome. Thank you. Well, so tell a little bit where people can go and support you online and where they can get your books and all that good stuff. I know people are going to want to learn more. Great. Well, there's a lot of resource out there, lots and lots of places to go. Uh, My website is www.kencloak.com, C-L-O-K-E. And my books are listed there. You can find them on Amazon. What I would suggest, though, is that you get in touch with uh, one of the local mediation organizations in your community. So I know that in Nashville, for example, um, there are a number of mediation programs and mediation courses uh, that are being taught um, at various universities and schools around that area. And you can sign up for some of those uh, courses. Some of them are just weekend courses or whatever. Probably a good place for people to start because even if your issues are about your relationship, it's written for non-mediators, non-lawyers. A lot of the other books are really written for mediators. But you're welcome to start with it, which, whichever one looks good to you. The most important thing, though, isn't book learning. Uh, it's realization that the person that you're in conflict with is right now your best teacher. Mm. And looking at them as a teacher and what it is that you might learn from them, that's a shift. No, I, I love that because a question I was going to ask was based off of a quote that I just thought of because um, because of the topic you just brought up. But it's a quote from your book about committed listening, saying that committed listening is what we do when we believe our lives could change as a result of what we're about to hear. And I think that's like, that phrase in and of itself, if you can take on that mindset into the communication and the conversations that you are having, then everybody's going to have better conversations. Um, but yeah, but the, but the last question I want to ask you is I believe that becoming the best version of yourself is a constant journey. And I think it's a, a unique journey. I think the way that I'm going to get closer to the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you get to the cl- uh, best version of yourself. And so what I want to ask for you personally is if there are three things that you could currently do or currently work on to get closer to that best version of yourself? What are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? I would say the first is um, to open your heart as wide as you possibly can uh, and nail it open. What that means is become as unconditionally open-hearted as you possibly can. Wow. Uh, The second is to extend that open-heartedness to yourself, to your own failings, your own difficulties, so that instead of beating yourself up and blaming yourself, um, you just see this is, a, uh, this is where you started, no judgments, now let's move on from here. Mm-hmm. There's a third part, um, and the third part is about kind of giving up the idea that you should know in advance everything that there is to know about how to Mm. do 
There's a wonderful phrase that I can end with, which is from the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury. Uh, he says, uh, go to the edge of the nearest cliff and jump off. Build your wings on the way down. <laughs> that is good. So don't think you have to have all the answers before you start. Just jump off and build your wings on the way down. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great saying and a great way to end it. Uh, that's all we got. I appreciate it, Ken. That was awesome. A pleasure, Nick. Thank you very much. Of course. There you have it. If you thought this interview was valuable, make sure you go to kencloak.com and grab a copy of Resolving Conflicts at Work. 10 strategies for everyone on the job. It's an absolute game changer that gives you really practical tips that you can start applying right now or even tomorrow. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave it a quick review on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. I try to bring you guys week in and week out some of the best people in the entire world in their industries. So all I ask in return is maybe a quick review, maybe sharing it with your friends or maybe just posting about it on social media, whatever really works best for you. We just want to share these inspiring words and stories so that more people can get closer and closer to the best version of themselves. Remember, when you're having your next conversation at work, to be a committed listener, meaning go into the conversation believing that your life could change as a result of what you are about to hear. It's been an absolute game changer for me, and I've just been applying it for the last couple of weeks. But if you listen closely enough and committedly enough and ask the right questions, you can leave almost every conversation with a new nugget of wisdom that you didn't have prior. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, if you're listening, you probably want to improve every single day, right? You probably watch informative YouTube videos, read great articles, listen to other podcasts. Is there anyone you would like me to interview on this show? If so, send me a DM on Instagram at carrier underscore best you and let me know who you want me to interview. If you do this, I promise to make it worth your while by rewarding you with something very special. But for now, it's time. It's time to take action. It's time to be a committed listener. Time to think about how to get things right rather than think of something as good or bad, but rather right or wrong. Time to open our hearts wide and nail them open because that's how we will turn into committed listeners and have the ability to solve more conflicts, which is such an important skill that I need, that we need, and that you need to get closer and closer to your best you.